when we come to meditation. Sometimes we're coming looking for something special, bliss, joy, lovely light, golden experiences. And those things happen from time to time. But what I'd like to talk about today is kind of the opposite side of things, the, um, the ordinary, and how that ordinary can be the ground of our freedom. So I'd like to start by talking about mindfulness, which is itself a pretty ordinary quality of mind. It's, as we've defined, it's basically the ability of the mind to know what's happening while it's happening. And it's just a basic, it's, it's a basic quality of our minds. It's nothing esoteric, it's nothing particularly special. And it's actually recognized, it can be recognized when it's pointed out to us, but we don't actually consciously recognize it that often. It's like it happens to us, and it's not something we've noted or paid attention to too much, so we've kind of missed it. But then when somebody points it out to us, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I know what that is. Kind of as an analogy around this, you know, there are things that we experience a lot that we don't really necessarily connect with. One, uh, one friend of mine, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine one morning, and I was saying, you know, you, you know the sound of the morning doves when they fly away? And she said, no, I don't know that sound. I said, oh no, you, you know that sound. You've heard it a hundred times. The next time you ride your bike down the road and you see morning doves there, Listen to the sound and see if you recognize it. The next day she came back to me and she said, I do know that sound. I've heard it hundreds of times. She just really hadn't connected it with the experience or with the morning dance. So mindfulness can be like that for us. That it's actually pretty familiar to us once we start recognizing it. It actually happens to us a lot throughout the day. It happens moments, little small moments of it. For, for little split seconds, we come into mindfulness and we know what's happening while it's happening. But what we typically do with that moment when mindfulness comes into being for a split second is that we do something with it. We uh, we act on what we've known in that moment. And we lose the uh, possibility then of recognizing that mindfulness has come into being. Because we immediately, that's what we've been actually trained to do in our lives. You notice something, you do something with it. Or you think about it. Or you figure it out. 
as opposed to recognizing that the quality of mindfulness has appeared. And why would we bother with that? It's far more important to know that we've seen a bug on the floor and to pick it up and take it out of the hall. Why would we notice that we've become mindful? So we rarely actually notice this quality of mindfulness until someone points it out and says, hey, this is important. This is a useful quality. The Buddha did that for us. He really recognized the value of this quality of mindfulness. This ordinary quality of mind. Just a natural part of how our minds work. A natural function of our consciousness. That it has this capacity to know what's happening while it's happening. I really think it was brilliant of the Buddha to recognize the value of this quality. It's such an unassuming quality. And when it just functions in the way we normally function with it, it doesn't seem very important at all, really. And it was really, I think, the brilliance of the Buddha to recognize that this quality, when cultivated and developed, is really powerful. So it's worth getting to know what it feels like to be mindful. It's worth getting to know the quality of mindfulness really well. There's an interesting teaching about mindfulness that when I first heard it, I thought, how does that work? This doesn't make any sense. And this teaching is that the proximate cause of mindfulness is mindfulness. So how does that work? Partly it works because there are kind of two different ways mindfulness happens. There's one kind that's called unprompted mindfulness. And this is the kind of mindfulness that arises spontaneously when you're lost in thought and you return to mindfulness, that moment that you return to mindfulness. That moment is unprompted mindfulness. Prompted mindfulness is when you are already mindful, reminding yourself to be mindful. So you can perhaps see how mindfulness is the proximate cause of mindfulness because it takes that unprompted mindfulness and then recognizing it to then prompt additional moments of mindfulness. So from that perspective, getting familiar with what these unprompted moments feel like, or getting really appreciating these unprompted moments of mindfulness is really helpful, it's really valuable, because that's where it begins. That's where our practice begins. 
So I'd like to speak for a little while, talk for a little while around this, what it feels like to be mindful. To, I'd like to propose that it's really useful to get familiar with what it feels like to be mindful because when we get familiar with that feeling of what it feels like to be mindful, those spontaneous moments of mindfulness that just happen to us, those unprompted moments that just happen to us, they start to point themselves out to us instead of us immediately slipping by them in order to do something with the thing that we've noticed. So as we get familiar with this feeling of mindfulness, we actually start to recognize that it happens to us, this moment of remembering happens to us way more than we thought it did. In my own experience, I found that the, one of the best places to explore the uh, what mindfulness feels like, you know, when I first started uh, meditating, so teachers would get up on the podium and say, feel a sense of presence, feel a sense of of presence in your experience. And I thought, what are they talking about? I had no clue what it meant to feel a sense of presence. And so to me, this knowing of presence, having a sense of knowing what it's like to be aware, was, was pretty obscure. It was not very clear to me. But then one time, Joseph Goldstein said, Get familiar, familiar with what the difference is between being uh, what it's like to be aware and what it's like to not be aware. And I thought, well, how do you do that? How do you know what it's like to not be aware? But then I started looking at my experience and I discovered this moment of remembering, the moment when we remember about mindfulness, that moment when mindfulness returns spontaneously, the unprompted moments of mindfulness, in that moment, the awareness that has come into being and the unawareness are in pretty close proximity. And the, um, the mind, as it comes into awareness, has a kind of a memory. It remembers. There's a, linger, a lingering flavor of what it felt like to not be aware <coughs> in that moment. And so I began exploring that moment. I began exploring that moment of coming back into awareness, which I have, have mentioned. I think we both mentioned this moment as being an important moment to recognize. And here's another reason why it's so important. And it's important, first of all, because you're mindful. You're already mindful in that moment that you've remembered. Whatever you've woken up into, you're already mindful. It's important because it can begin to give you a sense of the difference between being awake and aware and being lost in thought. So in that moment, there can be a kind of a beginning of the recognition of what mindfulness feels like. At least for me, that was a very important exploration. Starting to get familiar with that moment, seeing if I could... Um, kind of contrasted in a way, 
And this wasn't a lot of doing. It's kind of just more like, what does it feel like now to be aware? And at the same time in that awareness, there is kind of an automatic lingering memory of what it was like before when the mind was dull, foggy, lost in thought. So in this way, by exploring that moment, the mind began to educate itself, my mind began to educate itself around what awareness feels like, what it feels like to be aware, what it feels like to be present, what it feels like to be awake. This can happen not only in our sitting practice, although the sitting practice is a great place to explore this. I mean, the other, another reason why this is a, such an important moment is because it is unprompted mindfulness. It takes no effort whatsoever for that moment of mindfulness to appear. Prompted mindfulness, on the other hand, requires some effort. But that moment of unprompted mindful, mindfulness, just arising spontaneously, Effortless. You didn't have to do a thing to have it happen. And as you begin to touch into that moment, you get a sense of the natural quality or the possibility of a very natural awareness that doesn't take any effort at all. So again, that's another reason why that moment is so helpful to get familiar with. Get familiar with this, this natural quality of awareness, of mindfulness, the possibility for a natural awareness. When we start prompting it, it, uh, it, it can start to become, and it's necessary to prompt it, it's necessary to remind ourselves to be mindful in order to cultivate mindfulness. And yet we, we can start, our, our agendas start getting in the way when we're prompting it. And so this moment when we just spontaneously come into mindfulness from being lost in thought is a real pointer to the possibility of what mindfulness can feel like, a very natural mindfulness can feel like. Unfortunately, with that moment, we usually immediately start beating ourselves up because we have been lost in thought and we lose our opportunity for these explorations. So for myself, when I really started inquiring into this moment, it really cut into that judging mind. Anytime my mind got lost in thought and I woke up again, oh good, here's another opportunity to see this effortless mindfulness. Oh good. (laughs) So I offer this to you. We can also notice this in the midst of our, our daily activities, just walking around you know, in the dining hall. This is, this is kind of more in the informal areas of meditation. And we have our form, formal practice time of sitting and walking and our informal practice times. The informal practice times we tend, to, we tend to, I mean, we're, our goal is to be mindful all day long, but it seems to me, in my own experience and in talking to people, you know, that informal time when we're in meals, when we're going to our rooms, when we're um, putting on our shoes, we tend to be a little less intentional around the practice. So it is a, uh, um, it does 
seem to be a little less of a, or it can be that it's a little less fruitful in a way. This is why we're suggesting the bells <laughs> at 2 o'clock, at 6.30, kind of delineate these informal times from the formal times. It's not that, not that we're like really taking a break so much in the informal times, but it, just something about that intentionality of formal practice supports the, the cultivation of these qualities. So in our informal practice times, actually, we get more opportunity to find this, to, to recognize this moment of waking up because we're not being so intentional about putting the effort in. So use that time as a time to explore this moment of remembering, this moment of, oh, I'm reaching for a glass and I'm noticing my arm just kind of magically moving through the air. You don't have to stop. You don't have to do a thing. You just notice mindfulness has has arisen and you're noticing what's happening kind of without missing a beat. The mindfulness just automatically lands on what's happening. It's like a light comes on. So see if you can get familiar with what this feels like. Now I do have to say that in the initial explorations of this, it's not going to feel like a light comes on like that probably. Because there seems to be this lag, in a way, between mindfulness returning and our recognizing consciously that mindfulness has returned. It's kind of like coming out of the mud. You know, it's kind of like there's... The way I understand it from the Abhidhamma perspective, in terms of, um, you know, the way the mind functions, it's that there's the, the, the mind is said to function in all these very small moments of experience and a moment, a mind moment can either be mindful or not mindful. And mind, mind moments are really, really tiny. That's like 17 trillion mind moments in the blink of an eye or some you know, fantastic number like that. So really, really tiny, these mind moments. And in a mind moment, it's said you can be mindful or not mindful. So it's kind of like mindfulness returns for a mind moment or two, and then it's not there for like 50 mind moments, and then it's there for a mind moment or two, and it's not there. And it's like it takes enough of the mind moments to have mindfulness before we recognize it consciously. Something like that. It's kind of my own model of it. So it kind of feels like we're coming out of the mud, and initially it may be that it, it's, it's not quite such a clear distinction between awareness and non-awareness. But just keep playing with it. My exploration around this was, what's the earliest I can recognize that I'm back? You know, that when we leap on and start judging, that's, you know, you've become mindful. You've, you've become mindful enough to know that you're back, but then you start judging, and so you've lost the mindfulness again. So part of it, the exploration, is around really letting go of that judgment so you can just meet that moment of effortless mindfulness as it returns. This moment happens to all of us all the time. It's a great place to explore. So as we get familiar with 
what it feels like, what this ordinary quality of mindfulness feels like, what it feels like to be awake, we begin to appreciate, we start appreciating the value of mindfulness. Its value becomes more clear to us. (coughs) Partly because in the moment of mindfulness coming back, it, it, when, there's, when there's enough mindfulness, it naturally opposes greed, aversion, and delusion. And as we start to see that, we really start to clearly recognize how valuable it is to be mindful. So that's something about kind of ordinariness of mindfulness, and yet how amazing it is when we recognize it and how valuable it is. It's ordinary, but really valuable. It's ordinary, but the key to our liberation. And then there's the experience that mindfulness meets. There's seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, things going through the mind, emotions, thoughts. All of our experience can be understood as coming through what's called the six sense doors, which includes the five usual sense bases of seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. and the sense base of the mind. Everything we experience comes through one of these sense doors. It's all that's happening. All that's happening to us all day long. Pretty ordinary. We happen to like certain configurations of that, of those six things, better than other configurations of those six things. We like the configuration that contains bliss way better than we like the configuration that contains pain. And we tend to think that the configuration that just contains kind of like ordinary seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching to be unimportant. But for the purposes of mindfulness, the purposes of waking up, for the purposes of liberation, it makes no difference what's going on in those six sense spaces. The important quality is to be aware of what is going on in those six sense spaces. It does not matter what we are paying attention to. It really does not matter. So from this perspective, ordinary experience, the ordinariness of walking through the woods or going to the grocery store, is the ground for our waking up. That reminds me of a story from 
sitting with Sayadaw Utejaniya, there was one time one of the, uh, in one of the group interviews that we had where uh, one of the people in our group was a monk and he had gone off to the Shwedagon Pagoda one day to, uh, to circumambulate the pagoda and to meditate at the, at the pagoda. It's, uh, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful place in Rangoon. And he came back and, and he was saying how great it was. He said, I really recommend going to Shwedagon. It was fabulous. So wonderful mindfulness I had at Shwedagon. My mindfulness was clear and I was meditating all day. It was just so clear. Saido Utejaniya's response was, Shwedagon is a good place to be mindful. So is the supermarket. <laughs> no difference. Doesn't matter. There's a, the Buddha pointed to this. He, there's a, a sutta that I'll read to you. It's called The Roots of Everything. He says, All things are rooted in desire. They come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact, and converge on feelings. The foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom, their essence, liberation. All things merge in the deathless, and Nibbana is their culmination. Nibbana meaning freedom, liberation. That's all things he's talking about. It's not just states of bliss that merge in liberation. All things. There's no part of our normal, everyday experience that is not worth paying attention to. The very ordinariness of our experience can be the place where we wake up. Meeting these experiences at the six sense bases, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, we just start to see, with mindfulness becoming continuous, we see that the whole show is a process. It's just a flow of changing causes and conditions. Seeing appears and disappears. Hearing appears and disappears. It's just a flow of phenomenon. Munindra, one of our teacher's teacher, had this phrase, empty phenomenon rolling on. Just seeing, just hearing, just smelling, just tasting, just things in the mind rolling on. We see the, just the impersonal nature of this. It doesn't have to be special seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. Any seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching will do to point out this impersonal nature of our experience. And this recognition of the impersonal nature of our experience, that it is just a process, that there's no one particularly here doing anything, this recognition really begins to free us because our suffering the way that we struggle, the way that we suffer, 
is all bound up with there being someone who suffers. This teaching on not-self, which I'm not going to talk about much. (laughs) Talk about it for weeks. But I will say one thing. Uh, When I first heard about it, it, it felt like kind of a It was a foreign concept, it sounded strange, and it sounded kind of scary. You know, no self, you know, who's doing anything? It it felt threatening, in a way, to hear about this teaching. And then on one three-month retreat, I began to have my first taste of seeing just the process of life unfolding. Touching into that sense that there's no one here doing anything, it's just happening. That experience was a relief. It was not threatening. It was not scary. It was a huge relief. It's kind of a surprise to me that, you know, this thing that I had, this thing, this idea I had in my mind, you know, this not-self thing, it sounded like it was going to be so scary to meet it. It was such a relief. I came back and reported this to one of my teachers, and. He quoted, I think, a Zen saying, no self, no problem. (laughs) So through our sense doors, every experience we have through our sense doors has two sides to it. It's got the thing that we know, the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, the thought, the emotion, and it's got the knowing quality. There's the thing and the knowing of it. The sight and the knowing of it. The smell and the knowing of it. Every experience has that. Whether or not we're mindful, there is this knowing quality. It's it's called consciousness in the Buddhist psychology. So Every sense experience has this consciousness to it. It's usually easier for us to be mindful of the thing, the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, than it is to be aware or familiar with the the knowing aspect. But it can be helpful to start to get familiar with this knowing aspect. Because this knowing quality, I mean basically the function, one of the functions of the mind is just to know things. That's its job. It, it just takes things in and it knows them. It doesn't care what it knows. It doesn't have any opinions or views about what it knows. It just knows. That's its job. And so kind of inherently embedded in this quality of knowing is non-judgment, acceptance, clarity, So starting to get familiar with this knowing aspect of our experience begins to connect us with some of these qualities that it embodies. So how do we learn to touch into this knowing quality? It's it's not obvious. It's even less obvious than mindfulness, than being aware of mindfulness. There's a few 
things I can say about this. It's kind of indirect in a way. We know the knowing because it knows something. Saira Uteshaniya said one day, he said, I've been trying to think of a good analogy about knowing, how, how we see the knowing. He said, it's kind of like wearing glasses and looking through glasses. And those of you who wear glasses, this will make, you can be a kind of a, vi- a visceral experience, perhaps. That, you know, usually when we have our glasses on, we're looking at the world. And we're not so aware of the glasses. We're aware of what we're seeing. But the whole way we're able to see is because of the glasses. And we can kind of get a sense that the glasses are there. We take them off and we see, wow, can't see a thing. We can see. So we, we can begin to infer what the glasses are through how they function. Kind of like that with the knowing. We get familiar with it through what it does, through the process that it engages with. So a few ways to start to tease your, tease your way through those two pieces, the thing and the knowing of it. For me, the first place I began to be aware of this difference between these two is when I was experiencing something difficult. This happened one, on one self-retreat I did and I was experiencing aversion. And I was hanging out, paying attention to the aversion, noticing the unpleasantness of the aversion. And at some point I realized that there were two things going on in my mind. There was the aversion, and there was the knowing of the aversion. And I began kind of exploring through using the noting practice. This was using the noting practice. Aversion is known. Knowing aversion. When I kind of inclined my mind in that way to the knowing of the aversion, the experience became neutral. It was no longer unpleasant because knowing is neutral. It is inherently neutral. And so for me, this exploration, particularly where something is difficult or challenging, where there's a, a, a difficult state of mind, if you can be with it, if you can hang out with it without too much resistance, or just hanging out with aversion or hanging out with an unpleasant pain, if you can, with, without you know, reactivity, you're just hanging out with that, if you can, in that space, incline your mind towards, what does it mean to know aversion? You might get a flavor of the neutrality of the knowing. It was quite an interesting, it was like flipping a switch. I could go back and forth. Aversion, unpleasant. Knowing aversion, neutral. So that's one way to explore this quality of knowing. Another is through this question, am I aware? The question that Utejaniya recommends. He suggests, am I aware? What am I aware of? Those two questions reflect the knowing and the object. So the orientation towards asking the question, am I aware, is orienting us towards recognizing what is awareness anyway. 
So in asking that question, am I aware, don't just jump over it. Hang out for a moment. Am I aware? What is the obvious experience there? Don't try to figure it out. This is not something to try to figure out. But for, for with this exploration over time, it may start to be clear to you what the difference is between am I aware and what am I aware of. Something Sayadaw Utejaniya suggested to me when I was saying I, I was having trouble distinguishing between the knowing and the object. It wasn't clear. It was hard for me to do, to put my, to put my mind in just knowing any experience. He said, well, you don't try to do that. And this is, again, he, he says over and over again, things I tell you aren't something to do. <laughs> we, we hear what he says, we go off and we try to do them. Um, he said, just notice when your mind is paying attention to the object and when it's paying attention to the knowing. Now, until you start to get familiar with the knowing a little bit, that's going to be not so easy to recognize. But the mind kind of naturally does both. It, from time to time, it lands on the object and knows the qualities of the object. It knows the hardness, the pressure, the heat, the tension, the coolness. It knows the pitch and tone of sound. It knows the color and form of seeing. And from time to time, it kind of becomes aware of the knowing of the object. So it just, the mind will do that. So it's kind of just attuning yourself to what, is, what the mind is already recognizing. That's a little more subtle. Another place to check into this um, is when your experience is really, really ordinary. You know, you're brushing your teeth, you're putting your shoes on. It's like, what is there to pay attention to here? You know, we can, we can kind of dive into trying to feel the pressure and tension and tightness. We can drive it, dive into the objects. But, you know, in times when experience is pretty neutral, that's actually an interesting time to, to ask yourself, you know, what does it feel like to be aware of this? When we're caught in um, something difficult, sometimes it can be hard to ask that question. When things are really blissful, we don't want to ask that question. So when things are neutral, just, you know, walking through the woods or scooping out your rice or brushing your teeth or lying down in your bed, what does it feel like to be aware of this? Now, not trying to figure out what that knowing feels like. This is just a question to, to kind of prompt the mind to explore a little bit, but it's not something to think about. The use of questions is kind of an art form, in a way. Just dropping that question into the pool and seeing what the ripple effects are. Drop the question, what is it like to be aware of this? It may be that your experience points out to you what awareness is. Maybe not. But you can just explore, explore that. And the last piece I'd like to talk about is uh, a kind of a, a state of mind 
that um, I stumbled into on one three-month retreat some years ago. You know, in my previous retreats, I had been really focusing on very detailed mindfulness in the Mahasi style, which tends to create certain mind states. It tends to create very precise awareness of um, arising and passing, of, of just little particles of experience. And I thought that's what mindfulness was. You know, that's what it meant to be mindful, to get down to where you could see every single moment of reticulated experience as you move your hand. And on this one retreat, I had to start, I couldn't do sitting meditation anymore because of the problem with my back, and I couldn't do slow walking anymore because, um, because of the problem with my back. And so I was walking fast and doing lying meditation, and the Mahasi style didn't, work very well. So I was doing a completely different style, much more open, relaxed style of practice. I hadn't met Tejaniya yet, but I was doing a style very much like what he teaches. And I began stumbling into this um, state of mind that was just present, alert, clear, but completely ordinary consciousness. It was quite interesting to me. It's like, wow, I didn't know I could just be completely mindful and have perception and consciousness feel just ordinary. It was completely ordinary, and yet it felt extraordinary. The reason it felt extraordinary is because it's a continuity of mindfulness. There's a continuity of mindfulness happening that allows that um, the clarity of connecting with just whatever you're paying attention to. And in that case, it was just, you know, walking through the woods or going up the stairs. It's just, you know, the completely ordinary perception, just knowing I'm walking up the stairs, walking up the stairs, knowing I'm walking up the stairs, walking in the woods, knowing I'm walking in the woods. It wasn't a detailed kind of precise mindfulness. It was completely clear. Just ordinary. Very ordinary. I began calling it ordinary mind for myself. And since have learned that that is how the Tibetans describe a state of very clear mindful awareness, ordinary mind. I think the reason it feels extraordinary is because that it, there is that continuity of mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness means that greed, aversion, and delusion have fallen away and in that state, there's a kind of a concentration. It's called the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of being secluded from the hindrances, from being secluded from reactivity. It feels quite good. So this ordinary kind of mind, this ordinary state of mind, is a place where we can live from. You know, that kind of reticulated mindfulness. You can't live in that space. You can't drive down the freeway with things breaking into bits. But this state of ordinary, clear awareness you can engage in the world with. And the qualities of knowing become apparent in that state non-judgmental, accepting, clear, brilliant. 
The Buddha used words like radiant and luminous to describe the mind. There's a Tibetan poem that I'd like to share with you. He really celebrates this. A lot of what I've been talking about, the ordinariness, it celebrates the spontaneity, the ease with which we can connect with experience. Many of you have heard this, I'm sure, but I've heard it hundreds of times, I'm sure, and I never get tired of hearing it. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it? passing judgment upon it and ourselves. Far better to let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically, again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous. Everything happens by itself. Let's sit for just a moment. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.